You are listening to Event Extra, part of the U.S. Institute of Peace podcast network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome. Let me introduce us. You're Katrine Marquis-UL, head of the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism, or the IIIM for Syria. And I'm Adam Gallagher, managing editor for USIP.org. One of the defining aspects of Syria's civil war has been the unspeakable atrocities committed against civilians. In the early days of the conflict, stories emerged of teenage protesters, mutilated corpses being dumped on the stoops of their family's home by regime forces, barrel bombs, chemical weapons attacks, forced disappearances, and torture have been inflicted on Syrian civilians for over a decade. As of 2021, human rights monitors believe that over 100,000 Syrians remain forcibly displaced, disappeared rather, and nearly 15,000 have been tortured to death at the hands of regime forces. As we approach the 12-year anniversary of the conflict with the Assad regime firmly in power, there is still little justice for Syrians or accountability for the Assad regime, extremist groups, and other parties to the conflict that have committed these atrocities. The IIIM was created as a justice facilitator in 2016 after vetoes in the UN Security Council prevented referral of the Syrian situation to the International Criminal Court. Thanks for joining us today, Katrine. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the unprecedented nature of the IIIM's mission as a justice facilitator, and then talk about some of the major challenges and obstacles you face in your work. Thanks, Adam. Well, as you as you said, we've been created as a as a justice facilitator in a in a quite unique situation in a way uh, where a very large documentation of uh, atrocity crimes and other human rights violations had been undertaken by a number of uh, different entities, including uh, UN entities like the Commission of Inquiry for Syria, but also you know, Syrian citizens themselves, um, states, uh, other organizations. Uh, international organization and what was lacking in the context of the V2 that you you spoke to was uh, an entity that would try to centralize and preserve the material accumulated but would also start the analytical work that is required uh, with a view to um, to to be able to prosecute those those crimes um, potentially at some stage in an international uh, criminal uh, court setting uh, but at least at the moment, in, in terms of uh, an entity capable of uh, facilitating justice before uh, a number of national courts that had undertaken to investigate, investigate those crimes. So can you tell us a little bit about the progress that the IIIM has helped made in delivering justice and accountability for Syrians to date? Well, the first the first progress really is the having this central repository uh, not only a resource that exists and is preserved uh, for future accountability but that is made searchable we are using technology to um, uh, make searchable certain aspects of the repository which are more difficult to search um, ranging from um, documents uh, which are not always in a good quality uh, the, the way they've been collected etc makes it difficult to apply you know automatic search uh, so we develop tools for that we have large amounts of um, video material and images which again are not necessarily the most easy 
type of, of records to, to search when you're looking for uh, specific information. You have this volume and you need to identify the relevant pieces. So again, technology can, can help, including uh, artificial intelligence and assisted uh, techniques. But we, uh, we wouldn't be, I would say, in a good way, in a good progress on the mandate if we only had constituted the central repository. What's really important in terms of progress is the fact that we've developed um, a relationship with now 15 um, uh, jurisdictions. Uh, and we have received uh, um, an important amount of uh, requests for assistance from this jurisdiction. We've been able to respond to those requests. So, so far, 230 requests for assistance from these 15 jurisdictions. And just to give you an idea of the, uh, the volume of investigations that are related to, to these, uh, it's 188 distinct investigations. Can you talk a little bit more about how the IIIM has worked both in a sort of bottom-up nature with civil society, but then also with states as well. So relationship with civil society is extremely important. As you've understood, we are um, primarily uh, required to, to gather documentation that has been put together and sometimes exfiltrated, sometimes uh, obtained uh, from outside of Syria. And we, uh, we cannot do this part of our job without having a, a relationship of trust with right. the Syrian uh, civil society organization and other civil society organizations um, that are involved in that work. From the point of view of engagement, it, it's, it's been very clear to me from the outset, and it was what they were expecting, that it had to be a two-way engagement. We couldn't be just asking them to share their materials with us or to share relevant information about the context with us and say, well, it doesn't work the other side. We have to reach a point where, particularly with those who are working very, uh, I mean, very, very regularly with us, where, for instance, we, uh, uh, in the, to the extent possible, can share with them feedback on the use that we're making of the material they share with us. And that requires to work also with the recipient jurisdiction uh, to obtain permission to share that kind of information. Yeah, I mean, the scope of what you're doing at the IIIM is, is so vast. Um, and I think, uh, you know, transitioning into thinking about how the IIIM can be a model or an experience that uh, other for other conflicts where justice and accountability is lacking. I'm wondering if you can talk about what lessons the, you've learned from the IIIM and that the international community should learn that can then be used in other conflict settings. Yes. So uh, probably I should say that while we were quite unique uh, in our kind when we were established, there have been uh, other accountability mechanisms uh, established after that. Probably the, the one that, that uh, is the closest in terms of, uh, of mandate uh, is the Myanmar mechanism. Uh, we were established by the General Assembly. The Myanmar mechanism was established by um, the Human Rights Council. But in terms of type of mandate, um, that there are a lot of uh, similarities and differences as well, of course. Um, uh, there are other accountability mechanisms in situ in the country where crimes uh, alleged have, uh, 
have taken place. And here we're talking, uh, I'm thinking particularly of uh, UNITAL, uh, a mechanism established by the Security Council. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to present the, me the mechanism as a model. I, I think it's clearly not for me to say, but, but we've learned lesson, that's clear, right? We, we've learned lesson uh, that we have shared with, with a number of interlocutors on how to potentially speed up the phase of establishment once the mandate is created. Because we were the first of, of this kind, we had to develop um, a number of processes. We had to engage including within the UN to, to uh, identify ways, uh, in, in particularly in the area of technology, uh, where we were going to equip the mechanism with the type of uh, systems and, and technology that it needed. Uh, we developed uh, what I think is quite, I, I wouldn't say unique, but, but quite a, a milestone for us. Um, we developed this concept of victim-centered approach. What does it mean in the context of a mechanism like ours? I'm not pretending, for instance, that uh, courts, including international courts, don't have a, a victim-centered approach, but they have one that is really tailored to the type of work they do. We're not a court, so we have to invent uh, a, a form of uh, uh, yeah, uh, a form of engagement with the victim and survivors of very different communities which makes it more complicated. Uh, in the case of Syria, we had to develop pillars of that approach. I mean, ways to, to consult uh, those, uh, those communities. And this is something we've started doing, but which of course uh, needs to continue to develop. We had uh, to look at how to make our approach inclusive, inclusive, inclusive in, the, in the sense of serving inclusive justice. And for that, we developed various strategies. We, we uh, very recently launched our gender strategy, which is really looking at how to uh, make sure that certain, an important part of the population uh, of victims and survivors is not omitted from the accountability process uh, by way of um, dedicated approaches to collect information about the various, uh, the, the male and female boys and girls that are uh, uh, affected by crimes and understand the role that uh, structural um, uh, structural elements, including gender, play in the in the development uh, and the forms of violence and the various uh, impact of violence on on the victims. Um, and this is just a, a very small aspect of that. Uh, we are developing similarly uh, um, a strategy to make sure that. Uh, crimes against and affecting children uh, and youth are well represented in the work that we do. And these two aspects are directly um, influencing and, and, and um, taking form in the type of work that we do. If we collect relevant evidence of those crimes, when we share materials with the courts, the courts benefit from that. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate the time and uh, good luck moving forward in, in the essential work you're doing. Thank you for your interest in our work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Event Extra. If you'd like to listen to more one-on-one -on -one interviews or explore our other podcast, visit usip.org forward slash podcast.